Welcome to the U.S. Mex Today podcast, produced by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, U.S. Mex fellow and University of Oregon professor of anthropology, Lynn Steven, discusses how culture influences politics in her talk titled From Tlatelolco to Ayotzinapa, the Chronicles of Elenia Poniatowska in Mexican Social Memory. for being here. Firstly, thank you to Matt for being a discussant, but also for a really amazing conversation I had within two weeks, which really pushed my book project forward. I really appreciate that. I appreciate also being able to touch base with everybody here and for my, my fourth visit. The name of my talk is From Sate Loco to Yotzinapa, and I'm going to do what I've told some of you not to do, which is to talk about a whole book project. I'm not going to do every single chapter of the book. I'm going to try to convey some of the central messages, uh, give an example. So I thought, I thought I would start out just by putting out some of the punchlines in the book, and then I'll develop some specific pieces. I got to know Elaine, I first got to know her when she visited the University of Oregon almost nine years ago. She came and had tea at my house, and I went used book shopping with her. And then I began uh, talking to her when I went to Mexico City, and I've been interviewing her really from about 2011 to the present in different chunks. And I decided uh, that it was important to write a book about her for different reasons. Those reasons in the form of the book have changed radically through that period of time. Originally, it was going to be like a testimonial book about her life. Big mistake for someone who has interviewed like thousands of people <laughs> and has written a lot about her own life. So then turn to um, talking about looking at her at a, as a public intellectual, but also the way that her work has influenced politics. A lot of her books, I'll pass around a few that I'll be referring to, have been analyzed by literary scholars, and I, I don't do literary analysis. So in a broad way, I'm interested in looking at how culture influences politics. That's something I've been working on for a long time in different ways. I'm trying to make several arguments in the book. Through her Cronicas Poniatowska documented crisis events, the massacre in Tlatelolco, the 1985 earthquake, the Zapatista uprising, AMLO's occupation of the Socolo, the massacre of Ayotzinapas, and I'm arguing, and I'll talk about how I do this, that she helped to inscribe them in public memory through time. These events also build cumulatively on one another, and through her writing, are branded into the cultural memory of many Mexicans, and those are Matt's words from our discussion. <laughs> the branding and memory creation takes place through a process I call strategic emotional political community creation, and also in the context of a counter-public that was developed in the 60s onward with independent journalism and publishing, which I will talk about. This is an important part of challenging the kind of hold, at least in Mexico City, that the Mexican state and the pre had on press and on media. And I argue that chronicas work in a very important way because they're very unique. They sort of operate on the, on the margin of fiction and nonfiction. They're kind of what many people have called a liminal genre. They, they use character development and real life discourses about real life events. 
and they also resonate with the Mexican public because they focus on traumatic events that are widely known, that people talk about and continue to talk about, and which are memorialized every year or every 10 years in the sort of larger Mexican public sphere. So these, these are my book chapters, here or every 10 years in the sort of larger Mexican public sphere. So these, these are my book chapters. I'm not going to talk about each one of them. Elena Poniatowska has written dozens of books. She's written many, many different things. I'm just focusing on her cronicas, which are the published chronicle books, and also some of her newspaper work. The first chapter, which I'm working on now, is called Creating a Counterpublic, Elena and the World of Mexican Publishing and Writing. The second is the student movement of 1968 and Massacre in Mexico, which uses La Noche de Tate Loco, but I write a lot about the context of that. Uh, chapter three, a history we cannot forget, the 1985 city earthquake and the organization of civil society. Chapter four is on the Zapatistas, Marcos and indigenous feminisms that's based off of her writing about Zapatistas and sort of engagement with that. The fifth chapter is Amanecer en el Zócalo, which is a book a lot of people have not read, uh, which is a crónica she wrote about the occupation of the Zócalo for 50 days in 2006. It's really not about López Obrador, I maintain. It's much more about the people in the Zócalo. And the last one, Telling Stories, Making History, the 43 Disappeared Students, of Ayotzinapa. As I mentioned, this book has gone through many different iterations. It's been a, a series of interviews, mostly of Elena. I've also had many conversations with most of the people in her family, her children, her grandchildren, uh, friends. I've been at dinners. I've formally interviewed a few people who are close to her. A lot of stuff came not from formal interviews, but from conversations around meals. I've accompanied her to a lot of public events, mostly in Mexico City attempted to go to the movies with her a few times, things like that, um, and just kind of hanging out. And then I've also done a, a sort of analysis of her works, not from a literary perspective, but more from a political perspective and a historical perspective. And I'm reading lots and lots of Mexican history as, uh, as context. So Elena was born of a French father of Polish royal origin, Jean Poniatowski, and a Mexican mother, Paula Amor. She was born in Paris in 1932, and with her parents fled, actually via Cuba, to Mexico during World War II. And she moved to Mexico at the age of 10 in 1942. I'm not gonna go over the rest of her biography, I'm just gonna move right to her writing. She was educated in a French school. French is her first language, but she obviously writes beautifully in actually English and Spanish. And then she was sent to a Catholic girls' school in the U.S. She had hoped to study medicine, but there was a devaluation in the pay, so she returned to Mexico. And she went essentially to secretarial school and learned shorthand and how to use a typewriter. And she began working, she began her career as a, a reporter for the society column of the Excelsior newspaper in Mexico City. And at that time, that was the only space where women were allowed to write. In fact, women who worked in the society columns weren't even allowed to be a part of newspaper union. And she's been writing ever since. She worked at Excelsior for one year, then wrote for Novedades until 1985, and then wrote for La Jornada. That's just a quote if you want to ruminate on that. But that was her, you know, she kind of went into it with very little experience, very little knowledge of Mexico. The first person she interviewed was the first 
was the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. That was her first story. And she mm. did one interview a day and published one interview a day for the first year that she worked for that paper as a young person. So one of the other important pieces that I'm developing and working out is what happened, what happened in Mexico with the press, what happened with readers, right, that allowed these chronicas to be published and allowed them to be so widely disseminated, replicated, and remembered, right? Because it's not just one person writing. So I'm trying to work with the idea of a counterpublic, which started with a feminist theorist named Nancy Fraser, who wrote about the women's movement as a counterpublic, and then Michael Warner, who I think is more broadly known, is a, a theorist, a literary person, he's an English professor at Yale now, who wrote a book and an article called Publics and Counterpublics. And he identifies a set of components of a public that are also true of counterpublics or publics that work in opposition that have to do with that it's self-organized, it's a relation among strangers. He says, in it, public speech is both personal and impersonal, and this is one of the most important ones. The public is a social space created by the reflexive circulation of discourse. Publics act historically according to the temporality of their circulation, so the temporality of Mexico in the 1960s, in the 1970s, in the 1980s is very important to this story. And he says a public is a poetic world-making. I won't try to go on that one because it's a, it's a long explanation. Publics are defined by their tensions, publics that are defined in their tension with larger publics are, are we could call counter-publics. And he says they work against a background of a public sphere, they enable exchange. These exchanges remain distinct from authority and can have a critical relationship to power. And what I'm interested in is the, the conditions that mediate the transformative and creative work counter-publics in their relationship with politics. And one of the, this is in the chapter I'm working on right now, I'm still kind of working this out, but trying to look at what were the avenues for building the counter-public that Elena Ponopolska's work sort of went through, that happened through writing and public. And one of the really important things that happened in Mexico City was the emergence of independent newspapers and, and publishers. And there's some really good historical work that's happening now, historian Vanessa Frigia and Benjamin Smith, who have really developed this area. And there was a conference at the center about journalism and media. So one of the edited books that I'm using came out of a conference that the center had. I don't know what the year is, but it's, I'm so grateful and happy uh, that it exists. So looking at the organization of media, what happened with newspapers and what happened in the provinces is different than what happened in Mexico City. Um, what are ideologies of reading? What kinds of stuff were people reading? And these historians are arguing, I mean, if you look at literacy rates, urban Mexicans by the 60s, 70s had a very high rate of literacy, something like 80, 85%, not in the provinces. And while people didn't necessarily read what, what, what many historians call the sort of industrial dailies, El Universal, uh, Excelsior, people were reading tabloids. And the crime pages were sort of places where a lot of sort of dissident things were kind of discussed. So I, I find that argument credible, that people were reading, that they developed a style of reading, that they were sort of focused on newspapers. Beyond that, in terms of the books that Poniatowska uh, produced, 
we can look at universities, social movements, presses, civil society. The particular genre that I'm arguing she writes in and connects with people and travels is cronicas. And cronicas have uh, a very particular style that I'll talk a little more about. So in the 60s, print media kind of cracks open in Mexico. Um, there's the creation of independent publishing houses, um, particularly on the left. And uh, Ponia Tosca was actually involved in creating one of them, actually existed in her own house uh, for four years in 1960. Uh, Ediciones Era was created, and I think a couple of those books I'm uh, circulating were published there. And she published Noche de Tlate Loco, which I think has gone through something like 75 Spanish reprintings at this point, maybe more. Nada Nadie, which has been reprinted 30 or 40 times, um, and some other uh, books. Uh, in 1966, Siglo XXI uh, was founded, and this is kind of an interesting story. Uh, the state press, the Fondo de la Cultura Económica, published Oscar Lewis' book, Los Hijos de Sanchez. The president did not like it, the cabinet did not like it, and basically they uh, fired um, the person who was the head of the Fondo de la Cultura, um, Orfila, and he, with others, founded a new press in Elena, Elena Poniatowska's house. Her, her husband at the time, an astronomer, uh, was also involved. So that's a, a picture of them when they just started this press. In 1967, another sort of left independent press was formed, uh, Planeta. Um, more people are familiar, I think, with this story of Julio Scherer being uh, also fired uh, from Excelsior. And uh, what these historians argue, which I think is true, um, is that in the 60s, the opinion pages were very different from the planilla, from the front page, so that Scherer was brought in, uh, who's the founder of Proceso, was brought in to be the editor of Excelsior. And he was allowed to publish things on the opinion pages, but not on the front page. And at a certain point, the president got uh, very angry uh, with his coverage. It's a whole story that goes, goes with why he was fired and how the newspaper, it had to do with contesting, calling uh, a group of people who kidnapped a well-known business person in Mexico, calling them terrorists and criminals. And on the opinion page, they pointed out that the Mexican state also uh, you know, kidnap people. Um, so he was fired, um, and he founded Proceso, which has become one of Mexico's top uh, magazines. Uh, and then in 77, Carlos Payan and Carmen Lira uh, left, uh, who also left Excelsior, started a tabloid, sheet Uno Mas Uno, that I, I, rem I still remember. Um, and then uh, they that kind of faded, there were political fights, and they founded La Jornada in 1984, and Elena was also a founding member of La Jornada. So what I'm arguing is it's very important, the establishment of these institutions, of presses, of newspapers, and independent newspapers, and they proved that they were able to live without government newsprint, without subpaid advertisements, without you know, stories, and without that kind of support. So let me talk for a minute about the genre of crónica and why I chose that. I, 
I chose it because I think it's a particularly important and effective way of communicating with a broader reading public. And I think the way that chronicas work are also very, very interesting, as I said. Beth Jorgensen is someone who's, uh, she is a literary person, done a lot of analysis of Poniatowska's work. And she says that the contemporary Mexican chronicle is, quote, perched on the threshold between literature and advocacy, narrative and essay, document and figure, elite and popular culture, and investigation and advocacy. And she suggests also that it makes, has made as a genre, a contribution to a more inclusive and authentic democracy. It brings a lot of voices in, particularly Elena's Chronicas, where she interviews lots and lots of people around these events and brings voices forward, often first through newspaper articles and then sort of compiling them with other work into these books. So she argues, which is interesting, that Chronicas are more important than novels, or in fact they, they can get sort of more traction than novels. She talks, she's a was, was a very good friend, best friends with Carlos Monsivais and admired him a great deal. We've, we've had a lot of conversations about Monsivais. And we also discussed the links of crónicas actually to, you know, some of the first crónicas in Mexico, but we've also had conversations about Mishtek codices as forms of crónicas. So there, there are other forms of sort of chronicling, telling these stories through time. And I think that's an interesting and important kind of link. A lot of my own work has focused the last book that I wrote this, that's in the center display case about the Oaxaca social movement, focused on the role of oral testimony and the importance of testimony and sort of witnessing and how that works and also how testimony sort of gets textualized and travels and gets disseminated in all these different ways. So oral testimony is kind of the basis of chronicas. It is people talking about their story, about their experiences. Oral testimony has been very broadly defined as a form of retrospective public witnessing of shattering events of a history that's not over and is in some sense brought into by the process of testimonial witnessing. So I argue in that other book that oral testimony becomes a vehicle broadening <coughs> historical truth through opening up who legitimately speaks and is heard in a given society. And I think Kronika works in that same way. So I mentioned that my other point, broad point, is that testimonials in Kronikas influence social memory They and the ways that historical events are remembered, canonized, I would add replicated, and shape the kind of future that can be imagined. And I'll go back to this. This is a this was an exhibit at the, was it the Museo de la Ciudad in 2015 on the 30th anniversary of the 1985 earthquake. And, and the work of Elena and many other people who had chronicled and written about that was on the wall, it was in videos, it was reproduced in, in photographs. So let me try to talk through this other idea that I have that I'm trying to weave into the book, which is we need to talk about the creation of counterpublics or these sort of channels that were created historically that allowed this kind of work to get out. But I'm also interested in thinking about the emotive aspects of the work, of the style of writing and why it connects with people. And many, many of the chronicles, especially the ones I've chosen, uh, the newspaper ones, in the, contain descriptions of intense suffering, of trauma, of resilience. 
And there's a, a very well-known Colombian anthropologist, Miriam Jimeno, who has worked with this concept called emotional community. And she, uh, she had a MacArthur grant. She worked with survivors of a massacre in Colombia. And they produced books. They did public talks. They did all kinds of projects. And she came up with this idea of emotional community, which clearly sort of builds on Anderson's idea of imagined community. But I think the punchline is that we have to think about how emotion impacts people and how emotion works in this kind of work. So I try, I try to build on this concept to explore how these textualized uh, oral narratives become a container for sort of bringing together emotional and political connections for people. Um, often not across economic and social difference, not that they erase difference, they don't, but they provide a sort of form of connectivity. So I argue that emotion can serve as a strategic link across difference in forging these sort of emotional political communities that can have an impact on the way that tragic events are remembered and through historical memory suggest paths for current political action. And we're seeing some of that now in Mexico. I don't know how it's going to come out, but uh, we have people proposing revisiting the Acuerdos de San Andres from many years ago. We have different kinds of truth commissions which are being proposed. And the sort of archive that exists that has been built up and the way that people think about it can influence or at least influence how people act in these political junctures. In most cases, this network of testifiers and readers through time, what I call here a strategic emotional political community, are brought together in a shared political ethic that may not result in traditional protest actions as measured by bodies in the street. However, at key political moments, this, they may be mobilized. And we, you know, as I said, we may be witnessing some of this. Um, the process of creating emotional community is centered in the act of one person narrating their experience of suffering to another so that it is not only identified with the victim but is extended to other audience, audiences who can identify with the experience and may be moved with it. That is from uh, Jimeno's work. So it produces not just a moment of compassion like passing someone on the street but a connection, sometimes political, that maybe will be translated into concrete actions. The experience of testifying, of listening, and reading the testimonies of others is key to how political perspectives develop, not only in individuals, but also in how these individuals connect with others to analyze the world from what may be a partially shared optic. And it may also affect how groups of people can participate in shifting public discourses. Okay telling stories and making history. So Poniatowska has captured the daily lives, opinions, and experiences of many people who are not in circles of power. Um, her public chronicas have reached a broad audience, um, particularly those that have been <laughs> replicated in these many forms. Um, the versions of historical events she has created through assembling a multitude of voices have been influential in the ways that at least some people in Mexico remember these events. And they've also been obviously debated by many people. Um, through documenting, textualizing, disseminating, and remembering key events through her chronicas, 
I argue that she's taken on a significant political role, not just a literary role, but a political role in at least a version of the construction of Mexican history. Okay, and I'm going to talk, just give some examples from several of La Noche de Tlateloco was published in 1971. It was based on dozens of recorded interviews. Some of them were done immediately afterwards. Some of them were tape recorded, some of them are not. And she visited many of the jail student leaders for the following year and also interviewed a lot of their family members and others who were eyewitnesses, including journalists who were there. And she publishes some of the journalistic accounts. It's built on a multivocal set of testimonies and photos. I passed the book around because I wanted you to look at it. It begins with a bunch of photographs, which I think is very, you know, kind of deliberate. The book reveals the complexity and the contradictions of the student movement. It shows sort of different pieces of it, the massacre, the arrest <coughs> and torture of student leaders and others, and the systematic cover-up of the massacre down to the literal washing of blood off of the plaza. My reading of it is that it provides a consistent and subtle critique of the Mexican state and it, it also suggests the theory of what happened. And people, you know, people who do literary analysis, they're not, they're not sort of looking for those kinds of things. So I'm trying to give it a different kind of reading. And it also contributes to what I would call an archive of opposition that was constructed at the time, not only from her work, the work of journalists, photo photographs that were squirreled away that have come out, and actually a film that was made by, I think it was a French filmmaker. Through assembling hundreds of voices and offering a different version of history than that promulgated by the state, it's a key document in this archive of opposition and all the stuff that goes with it because all of those materials are there too. And it's been shared by thousands of people, by families who were involved in the movement and documents many of these themes in relation to the Mexican state that I would argue are still ongoing. like torturing people to extract confections to support a state version of what happened. I'll come back to that in Ayotzinapa, and that was one of the logics of the title. I, th I looked this up yesterday after I did this, but it's been published more, I think, 70 times. And I argue that it really lays the basis, a cornerstone in her work, for holding the Mexican state responsible for repression and pushing for democratic reforms. And I think it's the, the emotional power and voicing of the book that gives its historical staying power. I also argue that at this point in time, with all this hindsight, it also has, can be taken as a somewhat serious explanation of what happened, if you look at how it's put together. She articulated a public explanation of what happened within the student movement, how the government worked to co-opt it, and a theory of how the massacre was orchestrated by the government through the insertion of sharpshooters into the demonstration into an apartment building to make it appear that the students were armed and provoke the army's retaliation. So most people were caught, who were killed or wounded, they were caught in the crossfire. The book also reveals the state's systematic application of torture to detain student leaders to extract false confessions. And these were subsequently used to bolster the state's narrative what, of what happened and why. And as I argued, these same strategies, if you look at investigations of Ayotzinapa, they're, they're pretty similar. So my reading 
emphasizes these uh, sort of summarize uh, some of the differences. One of the things she also interviews a lot of women and women who were involved in the movement. And until very recently, there's been very little historical work. There is, let's see, Sorensen, I think her there, there are a couple of young women historians who have published books and started to work on this, but completely buried. And it's in her book, and she interviews women leaders. Remembering Tlate Local. So every 10th anniversary of Tlate Local, there have been important new inquiries and revelations. There's a march every year. And this book, every year, kind of serves as a touchstone or in the 10th anniversary of these events. And for sort of a way of looking back and looking at the new, the, the new information that gets incorporated by the government. One of the things that was really interesting for me in writing this chapter was looking at the work that Kate Doyle and others at the National Security Archive have done. There's an incredible number of documents from the CIA, from the Mexican Embassy, all these cables and reports where they're reporting on you know, what the Mexican state is saying. There's also a lot of other documents from Mexico now, um, photographs and film. Okay, second example from the earthquake, Nada Nadie. And I'm gonna try to make a, a few other points here in terms of memory and how that works. And I'm gonna go into a, a specific event. But this book was published in 1985. It's a chronica of the earthquake. And I was in Mexico. I was not in Mexico as a little kid in 1968, but I, I was living in Mexico in 1985, and I got to Mexico City on the second day of the earthquake. I didn't experience the first day. I experienced the second day, and I spent several weeks working in San Antonio Abad and trying to, like, met thousands of many other people just to do something. And it's a personal experience that also is really sort of etched in my so Elaine was out there collecting these narratives with the tape recorder on a, a daily basis then she would go home and sort of write them up she ended up publishing them in La Jornada because and she quit Novedades because they wouldn't allow her to publish anything that kind of dissed the state and in 1988 the uh, the book came out and this is these this is a, an event that took place this was the 30th anniversary and she's sitting with Cuauhtémoc Mocavarca who is the founder of the Coordinadora de Residentes de Tlateloco and Super Barrio, who was a superhero who was created to represent the Asamblea de Barrios that was formed in 1987. He actually came to the center. I was his interpreter, and I took him around. I can't remember. I think it was in uh, 89. And I went to elementary schools with him, and I remember he had to go in the bathroom to like change his clothes, you know, like <laughs> Superman, and then come out and talk to these kids. And then he want, I took him shopping before he, he left. He had to buy all this stuff for his family members. But anyways, it's still there. Everybody's a lot older. So th this is an event that was marking, and she was speaking, and other people were speaking. But I'm going to go back to it, to something that happened, by way of talking about this sort of memory. So th these are actually uh, photographs from the museum exhibit, which was up in uh, 2015. But it's a very, you know, powerful history. Um, between 10,000 and 40,000 people died. Thousands of buildings collapsed. A lot of people were rescued alive. And the president of the country at the time, Miguel de Madrid, waited like three days before he even responded, before he said anything. And then he said that Mexico did not need any aid, they did not need any help, that everything was going to be fine, and uh, that Mexico has enough resources. So in the absence of any kind of government response, there was just this incredible organization of everyday people from Boy Scouts to students to housewives, you name it, 
who helped to get people out and the, and the Mexican Red Cross. People were loaning their cars. There were people called topos who were, you know, dug for survivors. And just these, I mean, again, and this is in, this is in Tlate Loco, which sort of remarks the place after 1968. Where I was in Oaxaca, and I went back, they told me that the gods had sat up in Mexico City. This was like a, a Zapotec theory of earthquakes. But it actually kind of looked like some very large beings and had gone under the sidewalk, had knocked into buildings. It was truly unforgettable. And the numbers of bodies coming out of buildings. And a lot of organizing happened. You know, some people talk about this as the birth of civil society. I don't really buy that. There are many other efforts earlier in Mexican history. But it certainly was a resurgence of civil society and civil society organizing. It was impossible. And Elena, uh, she began to record these testimonies. She joined the efforts to support the survivors. She actually ended up being a strong supporter of the group known as the Sindicato de Costereros, 19 de Septiembre in San Antonio Abad, where the factories collapsed. There were seamstresses who were buried there, and the owners went in to get the machinery out of there before they finished taking the bodies out. And this just pissed off. I mean, you can't imagine the reaction of the people and the survivors, the family survivors of the people who were still in there. So an organization was created, and um, Evelina, Evelina, Evangelina Corona uh, was one of the spokespersons. And in the, in the book, what Elena does is not only document everyday people, but she documents sort of the emergence of these leaders and their engagement with the Mexican state. like. Meet, going to Los Pinos and meeting you know, with officials and finally meeting with the president back and forth. And as I mentioned, she, it's not working great. So people like Cuauhtémoc Abarca and Evangelina were going to the state and they were pressuring for, they were pressuring for discussions and there were very significant sort of social movements that were building up at the same time, Coordinadora Unica de los Damnificados, Amanecer el Barrio, that reflected the voices of some of the poorest uh, people in Mexico and whose neighborhoods had collapsed. So one of the, this is just a sideline, but one of the things in reading this book, I did a lot of historical reading, and one of the things I noticed that was a very sort of deliberate strategy of hers in the book, for example, was she has, this is an English translation, this section called how much do the coffins cost, which is a father going to the Parque Delta that was a baseball park that was turned into a huge morgue. It had hundreds and hundreds of bodies on ice and with lime. And the father is trying to ask how much a coffin costs for his daughter and the adolescent daughter, you know, she was too big for a child's coffin. So she documents this whole discussion and then puts it next to this discourse that happened in the Anthropology Museum with the president and the cabinet people sort of talking about how they were, how things were going well and it was going to be fixed. And she called it, do they have their own earthquake? Like, is it, you know, these sort of parallel worlds. And then I found, actually, um, De La Madrid published his own testimonio that he calls Testimonio de una Presidencia. He was president. And in his book, he sort of directly counters things that Elena writes in her book. So my perception is actually it's in dialogue with her book, even though, because she writes about events and things and meetings that he, that he was in and the outcome of it. 
It also contains really interesting information about the 1988 election. So I, I want to move into uh, this event, um, which was at the museum, and talk about how the work in these chronicles sort of circulates and replicates. So we're, we're sitting in the museum. This is the same. She's sitting next to Cuauhtémoc Abarca, and she's talking. She read a couple of testimonies. Uh, she read a testimony with Guerrero, and, and makes a comment, Guerrero lo tenemos todo como un marco de fuego aquí enfrente. She's making very clear reference to the Ayotzinapa students. And at the same time, there was this exhibit that had opened up in the Museo de Memoria y Tolerancia, pretty close to where this other event was taking place. And it also references 1968. So these three, like the earthquake, this death of the students and the Ayotzinapa students get kind of lined up together in this discourse. And there's a discussion afterwards, and this guy there named Andres Escoto holds up a newspaper and he says, well, this is, this is what Elena Poniatowska published, the story of my brother, his younger brother who was killed in the earthquake. He interviewed, uh, she interviewed Andres, and it was published in La Jornada, and then he pulls out the book and he shows everyone it's on page 200, I can't remember, 45 of the book and how important it's been. And then he pulls out a USB and he gives it to her and says, you've inspired me so much that I have written my own chronica. I've written my own testimony, sort of beginning with that interview, right? And many, many people in this audience sort of stand up and testify about the importance of Elena's books in their lives, that they read it here, they read it in the paper. So it's kind of this public event that at the moment kind of embodied what I was thinking about the book, right? Because these are people of different ages from different parts of Mexico. Another guy stands up and talks about, yeah, we used to take your cronicas from the earthquake from La Jornada and we would make copies of them, you know, old-fashioned paper copies. And we took them to Monterrey and we took them to Acapulco and we took them to Puebla, right? So that, like this literal, you know, replication of the words and kind of taking it to other audiences. So two months later, there is this large exhibit that comm commemorates the 30th anniversary of the, of the earthquake. And um, a, friend of, a, fr a friend of mine happened to know the person who, her husband is an artist and knew the curator of the exhibit. So I got to go and, you know, sort of talk to a lot of people who put it together. And I went to the exhibit several times and sort of observed people in the exhibit and tried to sort of informally interview people about what was there. And it was, it was very dramatic and quite a number of quotes from Nada Nadie were on the wall, right? So I'm watching, you know, a 15-year-old girl and her mother and the 15-year-old is, of course, I can't believe, I can't believe that this happened. You know, I can't believe that the government didn't do anything. How did people survive? And, and, then, and then she said, oh yeah, I've heard of Elena Poniatowska. We had to read, you know, we had to read part of this book at school. So it was just another sort of way of understanding how this, how this work has circulated. One of the quotes that was on the wall. Con los dos terremotos nació la certeza de que la gente podría ejercer el mando, de que la sociedad era capaz de responsabilizarse de sí misma. So I want to just move on to my last example, and this is a 
this is a chapter I, I just finished uh, kind of writing a draft of. And that has to do with uh, Yotsinapa. And I, I use sort of two examples. The first is International Book Fair in 2016 in December, just a few months after Yotsinapa. Elena donated basically her hour of time. I think they called it Una Ora con Naponi. She invited a couple of the st students from a Yotsinapa and I think a parent of a student to come up and sort of talk to the audience. So can we, can we start it at about, and I just wanted to visualize like the counting because this happened all over Mexico. It happened, is it gonna happen? recognize this is something that was done again and again and again and still is in terms of enumerating the students. Um, the second clip I want to play before I talk is uh, Elena gave a talk at a large Morena rally in Mexico City. This was uh, six weeks earlier and what she did was read a biography about each and every student and people not all the time. They were kind of they were supposed to say regresenos, you know, give them back after every name. It was sort of intermittent. Um, but yeah, you, you can just start. You can start it there. I just wanted to give a flavor. She's telling the crowd. She wants them to do the same thing they did on this other occasion, which is. Fue maestro. 
So she went through all 43 students, sort of, you know, giving, giving them a biography, but then sort of collectively making them present. This was also published and translated and widely disseminated. Um, and so I think by, uh, in both these cases, she's building on the strategy of the parents and the people who are, have been pushing the government to investigate this and pushing for, for information. And in the chapter, I talk about these uh, in two ways. One is um, how the use of numbers and counting uh, as a group, like 43 people, but also using individual stories, is a way of rendering visible victims of state violence and continuing to keep them alive and visible through time, giving them personalities. They also write about the use of photographs, uh, you know, people doing hashtags and holding up pictures of the students. The pictures have been disseminated in many different forms all over Mexico. Um, and secondly, um, the cumulative power uh, of her cronicas and, and public presence in influencing the cultural memory. So her discourse, she has a longer speech, but it brings together sort of the cultural and political capital generated by her other cronicas about uh, crisis events in Mexico. And this sort of embodied performance, I think, in the place of the Socolo, you know, brings these kinds of connections for people. Um, so, uh, oops, let's see. Um, just have a couple more slides. Um, context and hope. So, the dead and the disappeared cannot speak. It is up to their families, friends, and writers like Poniatowska to keep their memory alive and visible. When the context changes, the interpretation of statistics and stories also changes. After AMLO was elected, uh, he appointed uh, a truth commission. And it may be that this is a new context for these numbers, for these stories, for this movement. Um, la Comisión para la Verdad y Acceso de la Justicia en el Caso Ayotzinapa. And one of the significant things that happened is that three days after this was formally inaugurated, I think it was January 15th, uh, just a couple weeks ago, um, one of the uh, people, uh, let's see, Thomas uh, Ceron de Lucio, who was the ex-head of the Criminal Investigative Agency of the Attorney General's Office, uh, and who was a key actor behind the crafting of the historical truth video. I write a lot in, more in the chapter about that video and <laughs> sort of its construction. Um, but anyways, he's, uh, he is going to be subpoenaed uh, and questioned, and he was very clearly protected uh, by Peña Nieto along with other people. But 
Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, uh, but the context has uh, switched, um, and it may be uh, that this production of the historical truth and the material evidence that the government displayed to, to try to convince the public that the students were detained, kidnapped by local police, and then turned over to local crime bosses uh, will be questioned. We'll get more information about that. So the public uh, speaking and writing, and I would say also performance of Elena Ponatowska to support the parents in their quest for justice is, is one small part of a much larger cultural, legal, journalistic, and political effort involving thousands of people around Mexico and the world to make these 43 students count. Um, so just some concluding thoughts, and this also came from my conversation with you. A, a lot of people, if we sort of think historically and politically, a lot of people thought that the crisis of the pre was sort of, you know, was over, they won again, or, you know. And if we look now over a much longer period of time, the time I'm covering in this book, these events from Tate Loco to 1985, to the emergence of the EZLN, uh, to the disappearance of the Ayotzinapa students, and the defeat uh, in the polls of the PRI, the arc of the PRI's political sunset is much longer. And I think we can look at Ponya Tosca's Chronicas, perhaps, if this is the sunset, as a part of that sunsetting process, or the way in which culture influences politics. Through the long-term development of a literary and popular counter-public, the events moving Flate Local through Ayotzinapa have been cast as crisis moments by the Cronicas of Ponya Tosca and memorialized. Through telling stories, Ponya Tosca has also perhaps been helping to make history. Thanks. listening to the U.S. Mex Today podcast, the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy contributes to the ongoing integration process between the U.S. and Mexico by providing a forum of thought leaders to engage in public dialogue and training. The Center supports a vibrant community of innovative scholars and practitioners who undertake cutting-edge research to guide policy decisions. For more information about the center, visit usmex.ucsd.edu and or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Till next time.